You're listening to an Emperor Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second Black Architecture Talk for the 2020-2021 season, or the year that must not be named and the year that brings hope for all. Um, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I am currently um, sitting on, on my couch, um, from my home. Welcome to my home. Uh, the Wurundjeri and the Boon people of the Eastern Kulin Nations and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Um, I would also like to acknowledge that the elders and traditional custodians and families and genealogical lines of everyone that joins, uh, joins me here today. Um, and pay my respects to their country and their family and their connections and their relationships. Um, we are all gathered here today to have a bit of a conversation about the, I guess, the state of the Indigenous architecture conversation. And joining me in this yarn are some of the most deadly Aboriginal and Maori women that I know and have the privilege of having conversations with. And we're going to have a couple of, com- like, reflect on, you know, what is the Indigenous architecture conversation? Where has it gone? Where has it come from? And where is it going to next? Um, and the conversations that we feel that need to happen at this point in time. So first thing I'd like to do is ask everyone to introduce themselves. And we'll go Carol, Georgia, Elizabeth, Jade, in order of people on my screen. Um, and I'll hand over to Carol. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Carol Gosan. I'm a Jitterball Gumbelbutter uh, woman from North Queensland. I'm also a lecturer at the University of Queensland and, um, and teach research and, arch- and architecture studios. Hi everyone, I'm Georgia Burks. I'm a proud descendant of the Kimilaroi and Dungadi people. Um, I'm up here in Brisbane as an associate at Myers Elliott Architects in Paddington. And I'm also uh, one of the co-curators for the Asia Pacific Architecture Festival. Uh, kia ora koutou katoa i tēnei pō. Um, no mai haramai ki tēnei kōrero-rero. Te koupapa nei. Ai he mihinunui ki ngā, ki ngā mana whenua mo tēnei rohe, mo tēnā rohe. Uh, ki ngā tini aitua mo tēnei rohe, mo tēnā rohe. Um, ai, kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā rakoutou katoa. Um, just a, a, a brief acknowledgement in the strange world that is currently uh, conversations virtually, I suppose. Um, I haven't quite got my head around how exactly you acknowledge everything here, there and everywhere, but um, nonetheless, um, kia ora. Hi, uh, my name's Elisabetta Henemoheta. Um, I te taha i tōkutapa on my father's side, um, te uriahau no Ngāti Wai me Waikato Tainui. Um, I te taha o tōkumawa on my mother's side, um, I'm from Samoa, Tokelau and England. Um, I like to talk about being kind of straddling the Pacific or having one foot kind of um, on one island and another here. Um, so yes, may my ancestors greet yours, um, and uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I am a senior associate at the um, architectural firm in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, uh, called Gazmac. I run an internal rōpū uh, or group 
called Wakamaya, and we uh, fundamentally exist to support uh, better built environment outcomes for Māori, but also for non-Māori in an acknowledgement of their treaty relationship, treaty partnership duties within within the context of Aotearoa, which I'm aware is a different thing um, in different countries. Um, as well as that, um, I have tutored, uh, I do tend to write, and I have recently come home just before lockdowns uh, from Sydney, uh, being an artist at the Sydney Biennale. So, hi, kia ora. Tēnā koutou, ko jei kaki tōku ingoa, e tētaha o tōku māma, he uri tēnei nō Ngāpuhi te aroa te whakatohia, e te puaku au e te rohe o te iwi Bandula, kei pārua hau e noho ana, ko au he kai hautu o te kaupapa o Matakohe. Um, so kia ora everyone, my name is Jade. Um, I actually did have some, I have some tātai or some links to Australia because I was born and raised on Bundjalung country and then I went to university uh, up in Brisbane at the University of Queensland for my undergrad. But I uh, responded to the call, from, call to come home, so I've been home for eight years now. And I've been steadily growing uh, this kaupapa of Matuko here, which is a, a kaupapa Māori design studio based in Whangarei and Tiataitukiro. And uh, we solely exist to provide architectural and urban design and cultural design services to our whānau hapu iwi, um, ngā Māori katoa. But uh, I, I've been building a team and trying to draw everyone home, actually. So all of our team of five are, are wahine Māori from Te Tukiro, who really bring a wealth of skills and knowledge and community connectedness. And so it really does good things for our hapu to be able to have our own people working on our projects. So I'm very privileged to be in that position and every day is exciting and work is really fun. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, for for those who might not know me, I'm, I've been curating the Black Architecture series for four years now. My name is Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palawan woman descending from the Plangamairina Trawaway people of Northeast Tasmania and convicts from the Cambridgeshire region in England. Um, I'm very privileged to be able to hold these conversations and a massive thank you to M Pavilion for um, supporting this through funding and also through ongoing support in um, centering these kind of conversations in their program. Um, so before we sort of uh, get into the nitty gritty of the conversation, I guess I want to ask everyone, open question to all of you, um, by way a little bit of context, um, what made you first interested in getting into the built environment or architecture? So what drove you? What, what planted that seed in your mind that made you say, yeah, that's what I want to do? Maybe we'll start with Carol. Yeah, sure. Um, well, it, it was uh, wanting to change Indigenous housing. And at that time, I guess it was um, the Indigenous housing that I grew up in and was very familiar with was really government-provided housing. Um, and, and some of the designs were really quite brutal and horrible. Um, and didn't really reflect um, the extended kin household that I grew up in. And so um, I could see family when they were living in housing adapting things to actually suit needs and, and, and modifying spaces. And, and, um, and I think I had very limited knowledge, obviously, when I was growing up that this is what architects do. They actually design spaces 
places <laughs> um, and and was a latecomer to a knowledge of even the profession of architecture existed. Um, and, and so essentially it was probably um, a very late development that architecture could actually have a role in, in, in changing that. So that's essentially where I started from. Um, mine was, is kind of simple, I guess. Like, um, I grew up at, in houses that were being renovated a lot. Mum and dad constantly renovated. And dad was in the built industry anyway as an electrician and taught me how to read plans, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, he, I have this vivid memory of him asking me, how I wanted to design my bunk bed and it had all of these like curtains and verandas and stuff that you don't put on a bunk bed. Um, but then I guess <laughs> the development at high school, um, I did a lot of art and I also did a lot of graphic design, um, which was in the Man Arts building. Um, and it all kind of just evolved from there. Um, and I guess I was guided by a school and by my parents into architecture. Um, and then when I started learning architecture at university, I, I realised that there was so much more to a building than just walls and a roof. Um, and I think that is what has kept me so invested in learning more about architecture and the way that it has its influences, cultures and communities um, around the world. Mm. Lovely. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I... Um, I chuckle at this question now because I've been asked it a lot, um, but I love hearing other people's answers to it. I um, uh, I don't know whether it's strange or not anymore, but I have been to some extent thinking about architecture, though not knowing that that was the word for it since I was probably about five. Um, I grew up in an incredibly small house um, you know, within a certain level of poverty, shall we say. Uh, and, you know, we, we lived in a what was called a railway cottage, which was basically just a nice way of saying a really small shack for a single man to temporarily help build the railway in. Um, as a family of five, uh, you know, kind of only fit one chair in the sitting room. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I remember astutely as a child uh, how much of the arguments of my parents were around things that related to lack. Um, I very quickly associated the notion of sort of a house and a home as contributing significantly to people's health, um, love, sort of sense of safety and all those other things. Um, there's, there's lots of long stories associated to that, but effectively I was also given plans at a very young age um, because of my great-grandmother. She used to buy um, these really ridiculous lottery brochure things where you could win like an ugly McMansion in Brisbane somewhere um, and like bold bullion in a car or I don't know what. But I didn't really care about all of any of that. I just thought it was amazing that they had these enormous houses and these these things called plans on them. So from that, I used to sit in my bunk bed with my two twin brothers uh, below me, um, trying to draw my dream home. 
and um you know well but mostly just my bedroom um and basically that grew into kind of a real sort of keen spatial um curiosity as a child which I later as a teenager realized was a job but I never actually knew anybody in the architectural industry neither did my parents um or my extended family, my community. It's not, it wasn't a commonly sought after thing. So yeah, it was a bit of a strange one in a lot of ways for me to pursue so early on with such clarity. Um, definitely going into architecture school was a little bit of a different experience from there, but um, yeah, no, architect has sort of more or less been the plan for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm like Elisabetta in that I've told this story a few times that it, uh, it sort of sounds coherent now when I tell it, but actually there's probably a few different elements <laughs> uh, weaved into a narrative. <laughs> um, so I actually, as I said, I grew up in Australia, northern New South Wales, and um, I often say I grew up in an eco-community there, uh, which is partially true. So my parents were founding members and my sister grew up there, but my parents split up when I was barely alive. And so my dad always lived there. And and so I was, you know, with him on weekends and holidays and sometimes part-time. But with mum, we moved around a lot. And so we lived in like housing commission housing. We lived in like sheds out in the bush. We lived in like this, this tiny house that was much too small. And my stepbrother had a, a caravan on, in the backyard where he lived. And, you know, so those kind of things. So we did move quite a lot and live in housing that was not ideal. But my mum always made a real effort to make the home feel like a home. And I never realized that we were poor and that it was just me and mum and she's on a benefit. Um, and my mum always grew a lot of her own food. And I feel like I was protected from a lot of things that I only kind of realized later. Um, but the other component is that, uh, you know, my grandfather took us all home when I was about 11 for the first time and um, went to Whangarei and saw that, you know, we're taken to all this land and it's like, oh, it's our land, but I don't understand why our whanau are not living on it anymore. And my, my pop was talking about his growing up at Toy Toy and, you know, you know, really attached to home, but I'm like, well, it's just pine trees now, so why aren't we there? And I didn't understand why that was. And then we'd go stay with our whanau in kind of substandard housing around town, rented housing, you know, overcrowded, all of that thing. And there's a bit of a disconnect because I couldn't understand well, here's our land. How come we can't be living on it? Especially when the living memory of of living together on that land was only within my grandfather's time. Um, and so that's driven a lot of my work towards reconnection and return. Um, and probably the the last one is just, you know, you, I, I, got, I got the course catalogs out when I was in my second to last year of high school, went through all the courses, thought about what things I might be interested in. And actually my top preference was fine arts animation at Griffith University, but I changed it at the last minute. And my next like two preferences were architecture because I thought, mm, I don't know if I can make a living as a fine arts animator. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I chose the more practical option, but um, I really did genuinely believe at that time and now that if you have the ability to shape the physical environment, then you can create better social outcomes and positively contribute to people's lives. So that was what I think motivated me and what has motivated me to remain in the profession. Mm. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm going to ask you another question that you probably get asked all of the time by way of setting a little bit of context. And I know, Carol and Georgia, you've probably talked about this a million times in an Australian context um, about what your sort of education content was at university. Um, but I might throw this question to Elizabeth and Jay just to understand, because we have this conversation all the time, many of us go, okay, we had 
um, a week of architectural history on, on Indigenous architecture and it was talking about sort of the the um, different structures that maybe people from different parts around Australia made and that's really it. It never really continued into a contemporary understanding of what Indigenous architecture is, was or could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really set up a context for almost everyone that came before us who's now practising and everyone almost still now who's studying who's studying at the moment to come into the architectural profession with absolutely no idea of what Indigenous architecture could be. Um, and I say could be because it's, we really are in our infancy in Australia. You're a little bit further along than we are. Um, so I'm interested to hear your experience of your education and really what you what you experienced and whether you thought it was sufficient or were you, whether you had any content whatsoever. And I'm sorry, it's another question that we get asked all the time, but I want to make sure that we have that comparison in this conversation. Yeah, no, I think it's really valuable. I mean, um, you sort of get asked it in sort of different ways and different forms and certain people have various agendas about that question sometimes too. But, look, I think, I mean, um, Jane and I sort of, well, Gates had a different sort of approach to to the education of architecture maybe than I have, being that you started um, in Brisbane. But um, for me, I was straight out of high school. um, So, you know, the big not adult age of 18. Um, I realise you really don't have the capacity to make adult choices at 18. But anyway, um, so 2006 was my first year. Uh, at architecture school at the University of Auckland in 2010 was my last year, the end of the MR prof. Um, I, I'll just be outright and say I really struggled with university. Um, I struggled for a lot of reasons. I felt very, very, very out of place. Uh, so in my first year, at architecture school, I um, I think was one of two people from West Auckland, which means nothing to you Australians, I suppose. But um, I don't know. There's a certain kind of stereotype about Westies, I guess. Um, I was one of two Maori and one of two Pacific Islanders. So there was one other Tongan guy in our year. He lasted a semester. Um, and then it was myself and now a very, very good friend of mine, Joe Kura Tude, and we were the only two in our year group. Um, I remember looking around distinctively um, across the five years um, in my first year and not being able to really find more than about 10 Māori and Pacific um, students across the whole five-year cohort, so roughly five to 600 students. Um, we have systems potentially similar to what you guys might have as well as the the actual papers um what was called the tuakana program which is effectively a a mentoring type program um that's been created effectively because of the university's treaty obligations to support the maori but it also kind of loops in you know um our other brown friends aka pacifica as well um and in my first year, I there were three Tuakana mentors who were all amazing human beings, and I met them once at the end of the year. Uh, that was a sum total of mentorship I had um, that was, you know, meant to be run by university staff uh, who sort of, depending on which university staff member you got, um, you know, that the support was 
neither here nor there sometimes. Um, and then in terms of actual um, papers, we had um, a Pacific architecture elective in my fourth year. And um, nine of us took that course. And the other eight people taking it were all immigrants to New Zealand. Um, and I was by then, by fourth year, really, really angry about that. I couldn't understand why we could live in the Pacific and not learn about the architecture of the Pacific. And I think it was by fourth year that I realized how sort of <laughs> radicalized my own thinking had become and um, how frustrated I had been by the fact that I was largely quite disillusioned by architecture at that point, something that I had spent my entire life very set on um, doing and being and, um, you know, thinking it would really help me to help others. Uh, at that point, I was really surprised that there was nothing, there wasn't any content really that was directly about anything Māori, anything Pacifica, um, unless you really went and sought it hard for yourself. Um, there are a couple of amazing um, lecturers who were in the degree sort of generally, Deirdre Brown, um, Rewi Thompson kind of came and went. Um, I had Derek Kawati by the time I got to fourth year, but again, um, as a shy maybe first year student, it was always really tough to get in touch with those sorts of tutors because they were also under really high demand and a lot of pressure, which I now understand as a person in that position being sought out by students. So, um, Sorry, very long-winded way of saying, not fantastic. Um, I don't know how much it's improved exactly, but um, that's maybe a topic we can we can expand on. I do, and I know a lot of my colleagues do, try and make a really concerted effort to reach out to university students. Um, and just to touch on it quickly, but there was a um, study that's been ongoing um, and the results of that were published this year for the 2008 to 2018 kind of period of research and they found that the number of Māori and Pacific students graduating the architecture schools has declined um, and so that's a really disheartening um, thing to know as well that, that the general average of students is declining it actually means that we might end up going backwards in the work that done over the last sort of 10 to 15 years and I'm quite concerned about that personally and I know a lot of us are as well so there's a, quite a bit of conversation at the moment about how to get back into high schools um, and support those students that go from high school through to university but it's a really really big conversation and it can't just be had by a handful of us it actually has to be an industry-wide um, thing approach so yeah. Um, so, yeah, my experience was uh, slightly different, but oddly the same. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I also started in 2006, uh, but I didn't finish my master's till 2015. It was, I dropped out like two, three times, and I will go through that. But uh, I went to the University of Queensland fresh out of high school. Um, it was quite jarring, actually, because um, thankfully I had some whanau in Brisbane, but they all lived in the outer suburbs, like... Murrayfield and Springfield where Māori can afford to live and so I was living right in the inner suburbs you know close to university but my whānau were all quite far away um, which was okay but 
it had its challenges. It's not like I could just stay with them. It would have been hard to get to school. Um, but when I went to uni, um, you know, it's a very high cutoff to get in. And a lot of the students were um, from very fancy schools, um, off, mostly in Brisbane. A lot of them were from really affluent backgrounds and still lived at home, which is, you know, which was great for them. But uh, they they didn't have the same pressures associated with having to work and look after yourself and try to figure out how to be an adult when you're still a teenager. Um, and, you know, there was no other Māori students or any other Pacifica students. There was no Indigenous students. Most of the students were white or Asian. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the demographics look like in the profession or in education now. Um, and I made some good friends, but I did feel quite, it was quite alienating. And I, most of the people that I was studying with hadn't had the kind of life experiences or background that I had and also had a different level of support to what I had available to me. Um, and so in my third year, my grandfather got sick and later passed away. So I took a lot of time off. Um, and that meant that I had to drop out of my final design studio because I just had gotten too far behind. So that tacked on, a, you know, part of another year to finish my undergrad at UQ, you needed to do a year out working as a requirement before you could return for your master's. But it was the global financial crisis and none of us could get jobs. Um, I went and worked at a landscaping company as an estimator and did a bunch of random stuff. And they let me come back with that because nobody could get jobs. I remember my most brilliant classmate um, who had, you know, straight, straight sevens, you know, high distinctions the whole way, was thinking about getting a job in his mum's friend's wedding shop because he just couldn't find a job in architecture. And that was really really disheartening. So I'm like, well, there's no hope for anybody else. Um, and so that happened. And then I went back to, I tried to, oh yeah. So something that happened in this period is that um, on one of my trips home, my auntie Liza um, suggested that I get in touch with our Fanonga Rohoskins, who's a, um, you know, well, well-known Māori architect. And so um, she gave me his contact details and I got in touch with him and he was really supportive and pretty much just encouraged me to come home. Um, and so I tried to do that. Uh, I applied to Unitech and they lost my application. And then they said, sorry, the program's full. Um, <laughs> and, and then also also because I just moved without any savings, I was running out of money and, and paying and living with my cousin. And I don't know, it was just broke. Anyway, so I went back to UQ who would have me back. And then I got there and I thought, I, you know, this isn't where I wanted to be. This isn't the kind of work I wanted to be doing. So I dropped out of, like, I dropped out of my first attempt at master's in 2011. And then I had to, I, I went and worked at... Uh, a shop called Culture Kings <laughs> um, for a while, full time to save up. <laughs> I also worked at a bar that used to be called the Hi Fi. It was like a live music venue. So I had like lots of cool jobs that my friends thought were great <laughs> in my early 20s. Anyway, and so I managed to return in 2012 and I started at Unitech in 2013. Um, and the importance of, of going to Unitech is that our Hoskins and Karen Wilson were both running and still are a studio called Te Hononga, which is a Māori design studio that works with uh, Māori communities on real projects. And, you know, that was just such a huge impact on me to be able to actually do the work that I wanted to be doing and see that it was possible and see that it was happening. Um, through Row, I also connected with Ngāaho, which is our Māori design professionals network. And again, I, I think that's the reason I've managed to stay in the profession because I, what I was faced with in my education is that the reasons that I got into architecture and that I thought were, were the, was even the reason for architecture and then the purpose and all these social things and cultural things, was I wasn't seeing that reflected in the profession, at least not uh, in education or the professionals that I was being exposed to. 
And I found that really jarring. I'm like, maybe I don't understand what architecture is for. Maybe I've got the wrong idea because nobody seems to be doing what I think, um, I, what, what I know I want to be doing and, and what I think architecture is for. And then suddenly I was opened up to this whole group of professionals who had the same worldview as me and the same understanding of what we were doing was about. And so that was hugely reinforcing and continues to be. Um, and so through my experiences at Unitech, I was able to participate in Te Honunga Studio. It was a really important, has been a really important mentor to me and, and helped me get connected. The other thing that's really important is that I didn't even know Māori could be professionals. All my family members work as cleaners and in warehouses and things. And, you know, whenever I do well academically, it would be like, oh, it must be on your, because of your dad's side because my dad's Dutch. And I think that's actually so racist. But, um, you know, that was the attitude. And, you know, Māori can't be professionals or Māori can't be smart. It must be your white side. Um, and so to be exposed to Māori role models who are professionals just generally, let alone in the area that I had been studying is just, you know, wild because you go, oh my God, that could actually be me. And then, uh, you know, the social capital that comes with that, like Ro introduced me to so many like important people professionally, which is not what you normally get as a student or a graduate. Um, but we traveled all around the country doing lots of interesting projects together and I have amazing networks as a result. And, you know, before that, it's like, how we, how do you even make connections? You know, how do you even get beyond where you're at currently? Um, and the final aspect of that experience is that um, we do a final year research thesis. And so I was able to have Ro as my supervisor alongside Mike Austin, who's Pākehā, but he was basically out there saying Māori and Pacifica architecture exists back when everyone else was saying it's not even a real thing. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. quite major. And so he's quite elderly now, and he, but his contribution was so significant. Um, so it yeah. was a real privilege to be able to learn from him. So, yeah. yeah. The Mike Austin thing is super important, and I like to contextualise it because he, in 1974, applied to do his PhD on Pacific architecture and was declined by the University of Auckland um, because um, Pacific, you know, Pacifica people, Māori people didn't actually make architecture. We made huts. And so the PhD was declined on that basis. Um, and so I like to, to remind people <laughs> of that fact that later, mm-hmm. two years later, he was, it was allowed and he was able to go on and do his PhD eventually an incredibly important work and he's a really, really amazing man. But, um, you know, it was, it's great to have had an ally to fight for that, to open the door for the rest of us to come through. Mm-hmm. But that it's it's not actually been that long since, since even the presence of us as having design excellence has even been considered as a part of the canon at all. Um, and that will be the case for you all as well. <laughs> yes. We were just mucking around in the mud, I think. Um, yeah. I wonder, Carol, do you want to pick up on the, the question that Elizabeth raised about indigenizing or what we call in Australia largely indigenizing architectural education and where that's happening, what where we're getting to with that? Um, that's one of your main roles, I guess, in, in your work mm. that you do. So I'd love to hear from you what, what you think the state of play is in that regard at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess that, um, you know, at, I mean, it's really difficult to have a whole of Australia context for this because yeah. there's so many schools, but... Um, and, and where it's occurring is uh, sometimes largely being driven by um, Indigenous people. And, and as you know, in Australia, um, we just don't have the numbers that 
um, New Zealand, I always look with absolute envy at the cohorts, um, not only against, uh, you know, in, in Maori, but um, Pacifica people as well, you know. So having, you know, because people have multiple um, family links across, um, you know, uh, Aotora, but also to other to other sort of um, parts of the Pacific. So um, in Australia, I guess that if I can just give you an idea about UQ, um, because I guess that's where my my level of knowledge is, is incredibly intimate, but uh, across Australia there is no sort of, um, you know, national approach to indigenising curriculum. So um, and, and a large reason is not... Um, a lack of willingness currently, but I would say when I was a student, um, there was a lack of interest <laughs> um, and, a, and a lack of uh, consideration of Indigenous architecture being something um, that sits within the canon as well, you know. So um, people within the profession were referring to what Indigenous people built as sticks and sticks and twigs architecture. Um, so it wasn't really even seen as something that had any sophisticated level of um, technological detailing, understanding, um, and, and, and so that's where it essentially sat in that sort of other realm of, you know, um, indigenous or and um, and it wasn't really considered as part of the canon and so I think that's been a recent relatively new and recent thing in a, in Australia um, and and it's been largely advanced by you know researchers and a minority of researchers who are working in that space but also working internationally with other mm-hmm. um, like-minded researchers you know and um, like Mike Austin, you know, the Mike Austins of the world across, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and that's certainly occurred in Australia where the, um, so taking that seriously um, now, and that's a very much a 21st century thing. So let's mm. not, you know, and, and, and pra- you know, researchers or academics or practitioners who are working in that space was sort of seen as um, niche and um, really, you know, um, probably held, you know, not necessarily held up but seen it, seen it as a humanist work, you know. Yeah. I'm going to work with the Indigenous people rather than actually something that really seriously contributed that Indigenous people, like all uh, all peoples in the world, were entitled and um, had rights to to have design spaces that reflected their culture, their identity, and their and their sort of belief system. So, um, yeah. So, I think in terms of the curriculum development, where where it is, there's definitely an attempt in universities across Australia to include um, Indigenous content, um, but there is definitely a lack of um, practitioners or academics who actually feel like they have a sufficient knowledge base to be able to teach at a university level. Mm. Um, Having said that, there is certainly a lot of literature (laughs) that people could actually access um, and and there is content uh, that could include that as a part of the, you know, um, not necessarily just history and theory teaching courses. I mean, I see sort of, you know, Indigenous architecture 
being across every aspect of architecture in terms of, you know, the design studios in particular. And um, through my entire degree, I never did a single design studio that had in any Indigenous architectural content. Um, and it was sort of something that occurred haphazardly. And I would say probably at UQ, it's, it's something that's much more... Um, it's much more um, frequent, it's offered, there's multiple studios, there's also staff, multiple um, uh, non-Indigenous staff who have that capacity to teach and really engage with, um, you know, Indigenous clients and organisations. Um, and, uh, and I know that at other universities that there are attempts to do that um, to varying degrees, but I would, would I say it's sort of something that's systematic as a part of um, architectural education? No, not at all. I mean, I'd be interested to know, like, Georgia, um, who went to UQ, um, did you do a studio that had any, you know, Indigenous content in it? or focus? A design studio? No. Um, and similar situation to their girls where um, the, the theory subjects towards masters that you could uh, undertake in your masters that had a real focus on Indigenous architecture um, was a selective. So it wasn't a compulsory thing for everyone to do. Um, and that in the bachelors, from what I recall, there was one or two that were compulsory. Um, but again, I guess sort of just touching on materiality and just form and not really getting deep into um, narrative or or even the cultural and social structure of um, each country, um, which really I think are quite critical um, if you're going to be designing on that country for these for the um, this particular community. Um, but I wanted to touch back on what Jay was saying, um, sorry, Alyssa was saying about allies. And I think I definitely got that from UQ through people who were teaching us, such as yourself, Carol. Um, mm. I think I met Spirit um, through yourself and Kelly Greenall. Um, the network sort of grew from there. And then, Sarah, I met you down the line. And it's just about this continuous growth of um, banding together to, I guess, I've been learning in that sense, in that way of educating myself through others, um, through these allies. But yes, I I can't recall having um, back in when I studied. Uh, I started my bachelor's in 2011. I started my bachelor's straight after high school and just kept going. I had um, a year out. Uh, in between bachelor's and master's and sort of finished that back in 2016, my master's. But, um, you know, that was even quite recent and um, I, I can't recall, like, I, I don't remember anyone sort of having a real focus on a design studio that was purely about just engaging with country. Um, I don't know if that's changed, Carol, um, but, um, yeah, that's... That was my own I, I can say that the um, the Pacific the Pacifica architecture course that was an elective when I was there um, was shifted to being um, a third year paper that everybody had to take, which is great. Um, I personally think it should start at first year, <laughs> um, but also um, something that struck me in these sort of general wider conversations that I've been having 
when I joined the board of the NZIA and, and um, so our institute and other things like that, is actually um, that we, between Aotearoa and Australia, probably need to coordinate our response to thinking about the transformative change required in the educational systems because um, a lot of the moderation of our programs happens between our two countries. Um, I know there's a bit of a sort of Asia-Pacific, whatever that means, um, kind of conglomerate. Um, but I have been told, I don't know if it was offhandedly, but or if it, you know, if it was an excuse, but that um, you know, there's general uh, um, buy-in in Aotearoa with for Maori content to be included in the degree, and that happens at various levels in various ways. You can kind of get into the minutia of how that is good and bad and how that works and doesn't. But um, that one of the harder things is actually getting it as a part of the same moderation criteria because of the size and weight and voice of the Australian universities. Because, you know, uh, when I was at university, there were basically three schools of architecture. Um, you could kind of say now there's four or five, depending on, you know, wh which part in the degree. So some schools will offer the bachelor's, some are now offering the master's, and then you've still got the three that are doing both. Um, so there's a few more options, but we are still a smaller voice in the wider um, context. But I do believe there needs to be um, a sort of broader approach that includes both of our countries. Um, and I think that's something that probably these conversations hopefully help change or help um, begin change for, with. <laughs> so that would be really exciting. And, so, and one other thing that struck me in my kind of years of dialogue and this sort of stuff um, was actually, um, it was unfortunately at Dewey Thompson's funeral. So very young, like he was only 58, um, Māori architect who was quite well known here in Aotearoa, um, who had a really close relationship to Kevin O'Brien. They were in the middle of trying to set up a trans-Tasman design paper. And it's always frustrated me that nobody's picked that up again. And it's nobody's fault. It's just like, it would be great to do. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I think there's a lot of value we have that we, we're, that's yet or that's yet to be tapped into in a way um, and particularly I think within the indigenous space within the design space and and I know we were we were navigators we were traveling before contact we were talking to one another as nations as countries as well and you know I have this like kind of bee in my bonnet about actually want to, wanting to reinstate that as indigenous people country to country and so um it, that's my challenge <laughs> to us and to whoever ends up watching this thing, uh, you know, and, and responding. It would be really great to start having some genuine dialogue to change the state of our education as um, as a as a group, as a collaborative group between countries, and actually to start designing together, teaching our students together. There's okay, so there's a COVID thing at the moment, but later. <laughs> so, um, I don't see why not. You know, we, we there's practical experience we have here. There's there's practical experience you guys have as well. There's differences that are beautiful. There's tensions that would be amazing to explore. Completely different land context. You know, we do a lot of other things. We're, we're sharing other things. Why not education? Mm. I, mean, I can speak probably on behalf of Carol and Georgia in this context. We would love to do a studio with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
That would be yeah. great. Yeah. Um, one of our universities should uh, make that happen. Um, <laughs> I guess if I'm, I'm just conscious of the time, so I, I do slightly want to move us on. And um, I'm going to skip one of the questions that I had, and I'm, I'm really interested in taking us to the point of what are you advocating for now? Like what do you think now needs to change? In the context of where the conversation has changed since your education and entering into the profession, but what is it that you believe now actually has to change? What are the conversations you're passionate about? I might go first for this one. Um, something that I'm really passionate about changing in Australia, in the Australian context, is just making it, um, making this kind of conversation the norm. Um, I think there are a lot of people that are afraid to get it wrong, afraid to say something wrong, and I think that's holding us back from moving forward. Um, so that's something that I try to advocate for in all my social groups as well as, um, you know, in the professional atmosphere as well. Um, so that's something that I really am trying to do, just make it a conversation that just um, allows for growth and change um, and awesome architecture. Something I also, that has stuck with me from last year, Carol and Sarah, I don't know if you remember, um, from the Paola um, salon that we had, I think in November, there was an image, and I, Carol, you've heard me tell this before, but there was an image on a PowerPoint that came up um, from this lady telling some amazing story about um, uh, how they had this mentoring program of all females who had been in the industry, and um, there was like eight photos of two generations of females, one's um, quite older and the one who's literally just fresh and green into the industry. And I want to see that, but with um, Indigenous females, that exact same same slideshow with more photos. Um, so that's what I'm trying to advocate for, just those two things and, and as much as I can, but they're probably the strongest ones. Yeah, so um, I think, you know, definitely take George's um, cue there in, in, in raising that. But I think the other thing is that I've lived to see, it sounds like I'm 150, sorry. <laughs> I'm actually not. <laughs> I just sound like it. Um, uh, to see the Australian Institute of Architects including that as a part of the national competency standard, you know, that having Indigenous knowledge and, um, and also in terms of um, engagement with, you know, as practitioners, um, respect towards, um, you know, Indigenous, you know, countries across the nation. Um, so that's been incredible shift and change, you know, from having zero content or limited content with, you know, one practitioner in all of Australia teaching or one or two practitioners actually delivering Indigenous content um, to now you know, the institute, the chapters, um, architectural events, you know, things like um, black architecture. It feels like and it seems like and it's and I think it's quite deceptive. It feels like, oh, you know, there's Indigenous content everywhere. It's so exciting. You know, we're finally at that space. But I don't think we're not, we're at that space until we actually have the realisation that George is talking about where we see Indigenous um, graduates really 
um, participating at high levels in architecture and being able to um, transform and change uh, architecture so that it becomes a part of the norm and it's not a, a fringe discussion, it's not a fringe event, and then it's not also an opportunity for practitioners to see, oh, this is another economic opportunity for our practice. Um, this is actually really core and part of the way in which they do business um, because they're, they're really in, in, interested in engaging with um you know, Indigenous people in a genuine way because that, that rather than for what the, you know, economic opportunity that it presents, which I think is pretty much um, sometimes the motivation of some practitioners. They just see that this is opening up across institutional spaces and hence you have to have knowledge. And so we're going to upskill in that because then it becomes another sort of strong business case for the expansion of our business. So, um, and I think that that will have a short run with communities, you know, um, you know, and, and uh, Elisabetta was talking about earlier you know, about governance um, and and Jade, about governance structures, you know, really being, you know, you don't see transformation unless it's sort of through every tier, you know, and engagement. And so unless there are engagement structures that actually really include um, Indigenous people in a, in a meaningful way, then, you know, I work in an institutional space that, um, and at an institution that's, you know, starting to develop Indigenous design guidelines um, and, and they want to do it in a way that is not, um, you know, adding an Indigenous layer to, to space, but actually do it in a way that it's transformative for Indigenous people in an economic sense, but also spatially, contextually, um, but also in a governance, you know, processes. And so it's a new form of business as usual, rather than um, the old form. So I think that's the thing that I'm getting most excited about and seeing that occurring across different institutional spaces to down to practice. Like I'm so inspired with what Sarah does um, with um, her, the practice that she works with to see sort of people like Georgia and also um, engage with, you know, young Indigenous people who are really super excited um, about engaging in this, uh, in, in a future that has um, great, impact and trans transformation potential um, for the way that Australia practices and engages with in Indigenous values and in, in space and place. Um, can I jump in there? Yeah. Um, so the thing that I'm really, well, there's so many things, but the thing I want to focus on is just the growth of kaupapa Māori practices. We don't have very many and most of our practitioners are either, you know, sole, solo solo architects or designers or um, they get snapped up by the iwi and go work in resource management or governance or management or something. Uh, or they're working in mainstream practices, sometimes doing Māori oriented work, sometimes not. And we just have so few Māori practices and so few of the ones that do exist have any 
appetite for growth. And we really do need some slightly larger, you know, I think some medium scale firms out there. And we need them all around the country. There's huge gaps. I mean, in terms of my personal ethics, I often, you know, would question getting asked to work in areas that I don't have whakapapa or genealogical links to. And, but sometimes there's actually nobody who is from there who has the right skills and training and the ability to take on the project. And to me, that's a problem. I shouldn't be the go-to for anywhere I'm not from, but I'll support it if there's nobody else available. But my next port of call would be to try to bring on board um, graduates or, 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 you know, younger practitioners who are able to step into that space with my support. So that's kind of the goal of, of the vehicle that I've been building. Um, but we need more. We need more. There's not nearly enough, uh, and it's a problem. And we do see some of the same issues around... Um, you know, mainstream firms become more interested in, in Māori work, sometimes very genuinely, um, sometimes as a competitive advantage because they see that there is settlement money. So maybe sometimes it's a bit of, of a mixture of both. Um, but I do think that if you are working in that space, especially doing explicitly Māori work, then really you have a commitment to advance it. You should have a commitment to advancing Māori practitioners and growing them so that that, that generation coming through are equipped to do that work in future. And so that's what I'd love to see from our mainstream practices. And that's something that Elisabetta is very involved with within her practice. But I also think we need to see our Māori practices growing. And we also have a huge push for Indigenous procurement at the moment. And a lot of it is concentrated in construction, general contractors, trades, that kind of thing. There's no reason it can't be also architecture and planning and, and you know, the other built environment um, professions, although we're not seeing it yet. Uh, at the moment, when we do government tenders, um, usually, you know, it's only the bigger firms that can be competitive because you need to have a certain track record and experience at, on certain kinds of projects and so on. And so we end up in a situation, and I still don't really know what to do about this, but where we've got the big firms and then we get our little Māori practitioners on the side teaming up with them. And then we inadvertently end up in competition which is as, as Māori practitioners, that's, well, no, actually, no, I can't say everyone has this view. I know some are quite into competition. I'm really not. I'd rather be collaborative. If I'm not the right person for the job, I'd like to step aside and support the person that is or work together and not step aside and, you know, be in a collaborative way. And um, I really think that's how we should be working. But sometimes these processes are set up that create a competitive environment without us even knowing um, and limit our ability to support one another. And I've often thought about what if our little practices started teaming up and going for these big government bids. But the reality is most of us don't have the track record or the scale to, you know, to, to demonstrate that we can meet their base criteria to even get a look mm -hmm. in. So I, it's, I don't think it's an easy fix. And I think part of it is actually getting some of our practices to, um, you know, grow a bit more and, and be a bit more competitive in that space. Um, yeah, so lots of challenges. We still have really low numbers in our profession, although it's higher than what I hear you have over there. It's still kind of astonishingly low. Like I think maybe it's like less than 2% of registered architects. I'm up. I can but, give you the um, actual number if you'd like. Thanks, it. I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually 3%. It's actually oh, okay. Um, mm. So like fractionally higher, but yeah. Not, not a lot. <laughs> you know who I was citing? Someone told me the other day it was 3% for Māori and Pacifica, so I was just shaving a bit off, but um, they must have yeah. gone. No, so it's, there's 65 um, registered architects who identify as Māori. Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's eight that identify as Samoan, um, like Tutongan. Oh, hold on. Here's the actual number. 
eight Samwon, eight Cook Island, three Niue, and two Tongan. So, um, small but small, small but mighty. Yeah. Last time I looked at the statistics here, or the last census, whenever that was, 2014 or 2016, I think we represented about 0.03% of the architectural profession. Yeah. And in order for us to have population parity, we would need to have 333 registered practicing Indigenous architects. And we're quite a way off that. Um, but it's something to strive for. Um, I think that I, I've loved all these conversations and I do have sort of uh, at least one more question to ask you. But reflecting on this, I was actually, if I may put my two cents into this conversation, um, I was asked to do a diagram for work the other day about what our Indigenous advisory space actually means. So my role in my practice is both architecture and ideally working on projects that work with communities so that we can embed those values of knowledge into our projects. Um, but then also working with governments and um, competition processes and other architectural practices to advise them or to uh, undertake traditional owner engagement on their behalf um, for other projects so that in the sort of greater good theory that if we can work with as many practices as possible, then this becomes normalised and more projects will work like this. And um, one of my colleagues asked me to create a diagram about sort of not what is our Indigenous advisory space, but why. And so I sat down for a while and I thought, okay, well, every project in Australia is built on, like 100% of projects built in Australia are on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. And that means that every project has the capacity to be an act of destruction, an act of maintenance, an act of repair or an act of celebration. And at the very minimum, we need to start with maintenance in the definition that it would be do no more harm. And what we really need to be doing is looking at celebration, which is genuinely designing with value in community, culture, country, values and knowledge systems of our traditional owners, whatever they may be in whatever place that may be. And ultimately what that, at least to me, means that we need to be designing with country rather than against it. And we're, I feel like we're a really long way away from that, but there are sort of glimmers of hope of um, examples that are coming through of what that actually means. But then also, like, we exist in this world of architecture where we're at university and we're sort of taught um, a certain way of thinking about architecture and it's very much object-based or it's very much theory-based. And you never really go back to the concept of, okay, well, the central question is, what is country and what does that mean for this place and what are the values of country, at least in an Australian context, and how do we make sure that we're working with country and the fact that that's going to be different everywhere. Like we have we have such a long way to go, um, but also there's so many exciting things happening that it really motivates me to keep working and I guess if I can keep adding my two cents, what I'm advocating for is that there needs to be change across every part of our profession. It needs to be encouraging more students to come into education of um, architectural development environment we need to almost de-silo these things so that we start having conversations across these um across these professions we need to make sure that our any indigenous people that go into education systems don't feel like they have to leave their culture at the door uh and that actually that's something that they can bring with them and that's something that their tutors are actually adequately available uh, equipped to critically evaluate and respond to mm. um, and that there are Indigenous people in these roles and we, of course we need more of them that 
students can see themselves reflected in. Then our profession obviously needs to change in that it understands what it actually means to centre country in design and that that doesn't have to be something that is only exclusive to traditional owner engagement. There needs to be a baseline understanding that every project we do, even if we can't understand what the knowledge is, we can still understand what the country is Mm. um, and that we can embed that in our design so that even where we might not be able to engage with traditional owners, we can still work from a place of doing no more harm and even better repair, even better celebration. Um, And then, you know, even the way that we talk about architecture in the media has to change. We need to make sure that where projects have had engagement with traditional owners, that they actually included those voices of those traditional owners. Our awards processes, Elizabeth and and Carol, we've talked about this at length, but our awards processes need to change so that those voices are centred, so that the engagement process is actually part part of that. And wherever our pro- these projects are talked about in the media, they have to change so that where we as Indigenous practitioners, every time I open a magazine or a journal and I read something, I look at it and I go, okay, this project is representing someone's totem or someone's Māori or someone's country, but nobody is talking about what the engagement process is. I don't know who the traditional owners, if they were engaged in this process, if they thought it was appropriate, if they think the outcome is appropriate. And how can I judge this as an appropriate piece of architecture or a good piece of architecture if I don't first know if it's appropriate so there's like there's just so many things but everybody's working and everyone in this in this zoom room shall we call it um <laughs> and sort of everybody across the profession um in all the different silos that exist is working on so many different angles to approach this mm. problem and that, like that's what motivates me to keep going because that it's not just you don't I don't feel alone and I know when I was a student, I felt alone um, because I didn't, there was no Indigenous students in my degree and I didn't know any Indigenous people in architecture until I was in my third year. And they weren't even people studying. There were sort of people that were graduates or had done something. Um, I, don't even, I think I met Carol for the first time at the end of my third year. Um, and that to me was like, what? There are these people that I should, I should know? How is this not, how is this not normal? Anyway, um, I'll stop talking. Um, I think my last question, because we're getting close to our hour of time, but it's okay if we go a little bit over. I just want to ask, what, what is it that you're most proud of? What is something that you've done that really gives you pride and keeps you going? Um, I guess because I sort of didn't answer the last question, but it links to this next question. Um I, so I'll start a little bit with a story and I'll try not to be too long. (laughs) Um, I got to spend last weekend um, with uh, our kaumatua, one of our elders from Ngā Aho, Matua Hare Williams, who you would have met, Sarah, Jade knows very well, who's in his 80s. He's a good vintage. Um, And uh, I got there a little bit late, a little bit hungover, definitely had lost my voice and um and the first question he asked after telling me that I was late uh and I had missed the karakia the prayer um was that um we were going to go around the table there were literally four of us at the table we were going to go around the table and we had to tell each other the story of our names and our life purpose this was at 12 30 on a Saturday and I was like what am I in for but I have had this conversation once before and I was surprised at how easy it came to me. Um, 
I think I feel like it's one of the life purposes I might have. But um, so very simply for me, and it sounds really vague and big, but um, a long time ago, I kind of had this realization that my life purpose was to birth new spaces um, that were of this whenua, um, of this land, of this people that were about um, empowerment and um, joy and and celebration, and not about with with an ability to acknowledge tension and pain and trauma, but to look through that. And um, it's a big ask of myself, but I've not wanted to shy away from the intensity of um, my own thoughts. Uh, and so that, that's what's been kind of um, low-key, high-key, the thing that I sort of, that underpins what I do. Um, and I have been very fortunate in the sort of short period of time for, in some ways, um, although it feels like, you know, a couple thousand years worth of work, um, to have had some really awesome wins, I, I feel like. And actually a few of them have popped up lately. I was asked to go to a hava circle with mostly Tongans, but a lot of the current um, Pacifica group of students at the University of Auckland who were all finishing their master's degree. There's a whole heap of them. And I get, get invited along, and there was actually me, um, a newer generation of graduate Pacific Island students, and then this current set of actual students, and I was getting called auntie. And... Um, yeah, they were being incredibly rude. No, I'm joking. But actually what it was was an acknowledgement of, um, I suppose, pathways that we're creating for these younger ones. And, you know, they're, they're talking to me about stuff that they had seen me do that I was completely unconscious that they had seen me do. And that, quite frankly, I sat there and was kind of like trying to hold back tears even though they were like gently mocking me um, because it was just beautiful to see finally start to see layers of of students past me and I I hadn't I didn't think that would come um and it's not about me it's actually about a whole sort of series of generations of hard work of of a lot of people that have put in the time to show up for these students so that they graduate <laughs> um it's being able to have conversations with an 80 plus year old about the new strategic direction for our institute that is like is completely fundamentally trying to change the way every architect has to operate in this country like we're not asking small things of ourselves it's the fact that the other day we were having a conversation in our office genuinely because many of our because our our new strategic plan for our practice is to be a bicultural practice. And a lot of people are nervous about that. They don't know what that means, but they're trying. And I said, quite frankly, that bicultural practice, being a bicultural practice that acknowledges Māori and non-Māori within Aotearoa, yes, we're going to have all the beautiful, fluffy stuff, the, the good-looking buildings, the great narratives, the excellent process. You know, we're going to lean in really hard to this stuff. But in order to get there, we're going to keep coming across systemic issues. We're going to come across the issues with our oranga tamariki, you know, our our um, ministerial uh, 
you know, parts of our government, education, health, whatever, that have fundamentally wronged Indigenous people and are still doing it. You know, highest incarceration rate of Indigenous women in the world is Māori women. So in order for us to do the fluffy stuff, actually as architects we need to do more dirty work in terms of the politics and the government and the really hard conversations. And I've been pushing very hard for a lot of non-Māori to lean harder into these spaces because they get too many opportunities to opt out and they've had too many generational opportunities to to opt out and I'm over it. So, you know, um, that I'm able to have this conversation and it's taken seriously, it's a win. Now, when we start actioning it, that's when I'll start dancing because, like, that's a real big shift. I think personally and yep it's really hard we are one of those big practices that can demonstrate track record with government departments but it doesn't it also doesn't mean that we necessarily got the track record to change things systemically because we are still trained as architects but I actually think the genius of us as Indigenous people and if I may say us as Indigenous women in this Zoom room um, is actually that we are not fundamentally just trained in architecture. We are fundamentally trained as our people within this collective knowledge group, which means I think we have better qualifications for dealing with these problems, which is actually why we're all in these really tough positions. <laughs> um, you know, but I think we do it really well. So there's there's these burdens that we have to unpack, and and that's one of the things that I think you know, is probably just going to be the reality of our generation and a few generations after us and definitely the generations before us. But it's really lovely to see some of the younger ones coming through, realising that there are already some things that have been untangled for them and some barriers, not always all of them, and only in a little way that have been kind of pulled down. Um, You know, it's all a bit muddy sometimes, but there have been little moments, I'd say, glimmers, light, light, you know, lights at the end of the tub or whatever lately that have been that have showed me that it's it's worth it and we're going to keep pushing (laughs) so yeah that's my thing um I might jump back in then and answer the question you know I always love being on things with um you and some of our other um friends I think you can guess who um, because you get to the tag team and I think even though we are aligned and have the same values we bring different different elements to the conversation so I always really value that and, and the value of being in the space together as Indigenous women is so different when you're the one lone voice and there's so much strength in being able to come together like this so reflecting on that question of what are you most proud of um, so it's a still a week in progress, but I've been working on two papakainga for my whanau in Whangarei. And to me, you know, reoccupying our, our ancestral kainga and getting back on our land, Explain I think it's the kainga. most... Sorry, yeah, let me try to do that. Um, so it's like our village, but our ancestral village. Papakainga is more often the way it's been brought back in contemporary times. Um, there's very few, there are some, but there are very few kainga that have maintained that kind of continuous occupation all the way through in, in a similar manner, although there are definitely some. So for most of us, it's been up interrupted in, in some way. Um, so Papa Kainga really um, denotes 
it's that relationship with Papa Tuanuku, which is our ancestral earth mother, and, and demonstrates that our ongoing connection sustained through time and connected through our genealogy. And so getting back onto our Papa Kainga to me is a really one of the most, you know, radically decolonial things that we can do. So we have 5% of Māori land left uh, out of what used to be 100. And we have a very urbanised population. So we were encouraged to migrate to the cities. uh, And sometimes there was not much of an option given so much of the land had been taken and a variety of other things. And so we have a largely urban Māori population and the majority of us live outside our ancestral rohe. So to be able to return not only to where we're from, but to reoccupy the land that was occupied by our tūpuna, uh, fulfil our responsibilities as, as kaitiaki or guardians of that place, as well as to be able to strengthen and maintain our language and culture, as well as the really important economic and political organising element of being in the kainga. All of those things are really critical. And so in terms of what I'm proud of is that we're on a journey as a whānau and I've been leading these projects um, and being able to do the architectural work uh, to develop them. And so when they are eventually built, so we're progressing, when they are built, that'll be the most important thing I've ever done. And even if I do nothing else, not that I'm saying I'm, you know, quitting anything, and I know I'll do many other things in my lifetime, but I could honestly say hand on heart, if I did nothing else but got our kainga back up and running, then I would have um, really achieved something important in my life. And so it might remain my top achievement even when I do lots of other stuff. Um, I feel like I'm so early on in my career that I don't, I'm like, I'm, I'm proud of like everything that I've sort of done so far in a way, but I'm, I still know that there's so much to come forward. Um, so with that in mind and like acknowledging that I'm only just sort of starting to take these big strides in my career. It, it's more, I guess, I'm proud of just being a part of this conversation and allowing myself to be vulnerable and, and make mistakes in um, intentioned areas or and have those tense conversations and then being able to share that um, experience with others to continue that conversation but also let them no um, experiences and how to sort of tackle um, particular situations in, um, I guess, design, schematic and construction documentation form, like all of that stuff. So I guess that's what I'm most proud of is just being able to have these conversations um, and continue that. Sarah, so um, I just, you know, I'm thinking about that compass, that question about being proud, you know, and um, and and I guess that um, similarly, I think, you know, having to to be in this moment and to see this moment rather than as an individual accomplishment, the collective to see the collective sort of energy um, and diversity of Indigenous voices that, that is occurring uh, within Australia, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander voices. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that there are very low numbers on the ground, um, that 
the conversation is occurring and that we're using every available resource to, to sort of keep into in that conversation to keep shifting and changing things and um and it's occurring across governance structures and institutional spaces so i think that to me it's not so much an individual accomplishment it's but to be a part of that sort of collective um you know voice that is occurring and to see younger people coming through um through universities um, who are engaging in the space and have something to engage with. <laughs> you know, where I went, as I mentioned, I went to university with the objective that thinking um, idealistically that design would solve all the problems and that there were the mechanisms and structures that would engage and invite that that sort of change in conversation. Um, and disappointingly, you know, I still find that Indigenous housing um, my whole sole objective is is um, hasn't really shifted dramatically in in the way that um, I imagined it would with indigenous import and um, and so there are there's still you know there are still lots of things that have to occur across um, a whole range of structures for for real and meaningful change and I don't think it's something that can be solely done just by indigenous people um, constantly sort of using our own agency and projecting into the spaces that are controlled by others you know I think really um, as Elizabeth Peter um, mentioned it's about allies really looking for those allies and it should be something that is the remit of every practitioner who's operating in the space and um, rather than um, because it's not going to be something that is is going to be achieved by a small group, although, you know, there there is the myth of, you know, one voice changes everything, you know, you know it, it doesn't really. <laughs> we like to think that, but in reality we need a whole range of um, the collectivity of um you know, everyone participating in that and really joining with allies, you know, to, to create that. So I think it's, and, and it's nice to look on the horizon and see that there are sort of winds of change and it's occurring in really quite meaningful ways and not just um, in, in sort of piecemeal sort of um, platitudes. So I think that, you know, uh, it's, it's great to to be at this point. And, and I, you know, I keep saying, I, I think I said a few years ago that we we're at the beginning, but I think I keep, I'll keep saying that we're at, we're at the beginning still and we've got a long way to go. And, um, and, uh, and I'd like to see, you know, what other things come on the horizon. And um, so there's been sort of some really nice positive changes and um, yeah, so there's more to come. Um, thank you all so much for joining us for this yarn. And I just want to, if anybody wants to say anything before I wrap up, I'll give you a, three seconds and I'll count down to unmute yourself. And um, and it's like Carol and I were teaching this year and I'd go, anybody? Three, two, one. <laughs> I would just say, I'm going to say one thing. Thank you, Sarah, for hosting this oh. and for all the work that you are doing in these Spaces, but I think probably I can hazard a guess that we're all doing it, and um, and I I genuinely hope 
for some some really restful periods of time coming up for all of us because I think something people might understand or know generally but maybe not specifically or any detailed way this group of women and every other Indigenous person in this industry will be working double time relative to their colleagues to make sure these conversations are happening so I just wanted to acknowledge you Sarah because I think in this space you know you hold you're holding a lot for us and um and I always love saying yes to the things that you ask for because they're always worthwhile, you know. They're always, like, really wonderful conversations. So that is my final thing is to say thank you to you and um, and thank you to you all for this, this awesome, awesome yarn. <laughs> I agree. Thank you, Sarah, and girl power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also, if we want to do Indigenous mentoring, you know, it might be easier to do it with a few more countries involved because <laughs> there's not many here, there's not many there, there's not many in Turtle Island either. So, you know, like that's this is, that's another thing we can set up. It's, that can be your thing, Georgia. You, you know, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just create yeah. another Georgia Jurman, but across the night. We started a group recently called Deadly Jurman for Indigenous women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in the built environment because yeah. we we needed a space to have these conversations. And if anybody listening is of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent and would like, is a woman who would like to be part of our group, get in. <laughs> um, it's really lovely to see what's going on around the nation. So, you know, you meet through that one page. I met so many other women who I didn't know were out there. And I, and that's, I guess, what we're talking about. One, allies. And secondly, as a collective, we need to move forward together and Absolutely. If you are looking to join that group, please do. <laughs> but seriously, we started with, like, I knew maybe eight people when we started that group and we've now got 21. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Excellent. That's awesome. Um, we might all hang on the line after this and have a bit of a yarn, but I thought I would just thank you all formally for joining us for this yarn. And um, I really appreciate how open and vulnerable you've all been and shared your stories. And I know that some of these questions you get asked a lot of the time, but I thank you for taking the time to answer them again in the context of this conversation. I feel like sometimes it's useful to have those yarns. Um, and I just, I, I look forward to us all working together at some point because we could change the world. Let's do that. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.